In remembrance of the September 16, 1868 battle between the Forsyth Scouts and the Native American Dog Soldiers, Wild West Podcast proudly presents the Schlesinger account of Beecher Island. Sigmund Schlesinger came to Philadelphia in 1865, a 17-years-old emigrant from Czechoslovakia, alone, with no money, but with dreams and hopes. Schlesinger initially found work in Philadelphia, but with the Civil War over, returning veterans quickly replaced the new immigrants' jobs. The only thing for Sigmund to do was go west. He found work on the railroad as a standard hand. The work ended in western Kansas, not because the railroad was completed, but because the Sioux Indians had taken to the warpath to stop the railroad. Laid off again, he volunteered for the only job available. He volunteered, with more chutzpah than brains, as a frontier scout with the U.S. Army. Sigmund did not know how to ride a horse or even shoot a gun. He quickly made friends with another scout on the same mission, a rugged frontiersman, a young man his age, Jack Pete. Jack taught his quick-study friend the art of being a frontier scout. Together, they rode into history. They rode into the most ferocious Indian battle in frontier history against Chief Roman Nose, the Battle of Beecher's Island, Colorado. Years later, Rabbi Henry Cohen of Galveston, Texas, inquired about Schlesinger's role. The general in charge wrote back, My dear Rabbi Cohen, In answer to your inquiry of December regarding Mr. Sigmund Schlesinger, who served in my command on the western frontier in 1867 and 1868, and who was with me in my fight with the Sioux Indians in the Arikari Fork. I have a high admiration of his courage and splendid pluck and endurance of young Schlesinger on the occasion mentioned. He had never been in action prior to our fight with the Indians, and throughout the whole engagement, which was one of the hardest, if not the very hardest, ever fought on the Western Plains, he behaved with great courage, cool persistence, and a dogged determination that won my unstinted admiration, as well as that of his comrades many of whom had seen service throughout the War of Rebellion on one side or the other. I can accord him no higher praise than that he was the equal in many courage, steady and persistent devotion to duty, and unswerving and tenacious pluck of any man in my command. It is a real pleasure to state this fact. I especially mention the pluck and endurance of this young man of Israel, and speak of him as a worthy descendant of King David. I am, sir, with sincere respect, very truly yours, George A. Forsyth, General, U.S. Army. The following is an excerpt from Mr. Sigmund Schlesinger. It contains an original account of Beecher's Island defense from one of the participants' standpoint and is a unique document in our Western historical records. For several days, we had been following an Indian trail so broad that it looked like a wagon road. In those days, our command, experienced in Indian warfare, told us that we must be on the track of an Indian village on the move, with a large herd of horses. Evidently, they knew that we were behind them, and seemed to be in a hurry to get away, for we found camp utensils, tent poles, etc., which had been dropped and no time taken to pick them up. Among other things, we saw fresh antelope meat, quarters, etc., and although our rations were nearly, if not all, gone, except some coffee and very little sow belly, 
we did not dare eat the Indians' remnants. The night of September 16th, before the attack next morning, Scout Culver, who was killed next day, pointed out to a few of us some torchlights upon the hills that were being swung like signals. I knew that something would be doing soon, but like a novice, I was, as if on the anxious seat, under a strain of anticipation, expecting something strange and dangerous. The next thing that I now recall was that I was awakened just before daylight by a single cry. Indians, so loud and menacing that when I jumped up from the ground I was bewildered and felt as if I wanted to ward off a blow coming from I knew not where, for it was still quite dark. That cry I will never forget. Soon I perceived a commotion among our horses and mules. The Indians, about a dozen, tried to stampede them. I could see in the dawning light the outlines of a white horse in the distance, and from the noise I realized that they were driving off our stock before them. Later in the daylight, we could recognize some of our ponies on the neighboring hill in the possession of the Indians. As soon as we crossed from the north bank of the river to the island, just before the attack, we tied our horses and pack mules to shrubs as best we could. During the day, a mule with a partial pack on his back got loose and wandered around the vicinity of my pit. He had several arrows sticking in his body and seemed wounded otherwise, which caused him to rear and pitch to such an extent that Jim Lane, my neighbor, and I decided to kill him. After shooting him, he fell and lay between us and served us the double purpose of food and a barricade. My horse was securely tethered to the underbrush on the island, and later that day I saw the poor beast rearing and plunging in a death struggle, having been shot and killed like the rest of our horses and mules. He also furnished me with several meals during the siege, Even after he began to putrefy, there was little to choose between horse and mule meat under such circumstances. Both were abominable. When day broke that Tuesday, the 17th of September, 1868, we saw our pickets riding toward camp as fast as their horses could carry them, excitedly yelling, Indians! Indians! As I looked up the valley toward the west, I beheld the grandest, wildest sight, such as few mortals are permitted to see and live to tell about. Many hundreds of Indians in full war paraphernalia, riding their splendid war ponies, rushed toward us en masse. Some were galloping in one direction, others cantering in another, their lances topped with many-colored streamers, the fantastic Indian costumes lending an awful charm to the whole. About this time, those among us who had any had boiled some coffee and were preparing to cross over to the island. I will frankly admit that I was awed and scared. I felt as if I wanted to run somewhere, but every avenue of escape was blocked. Look where I might, I perceived nothing but danger, which increased my agitation. So I naturally turned to Colonel Forsyth as a protector, as a young chick espying the hawk in the air flutters toward the mother wing. Under such conditions of strain... Some things engrave themselves vividly upon your mind, while others are entirely forgotten. I remember that distinctly, as in my trepidation, I instinctively kept close to the colonel. I was reassured by his remarkable self-possession and coolness. While stirring everyone to activity around us, he consulted with Lieutenant Beecher and the guide, Sharp Grover, giving directions here, advice there, until most of the command had crossed. Then he crossed himself and posted the men, telling them where to take up their different positions. Meantime, the Indians were coming closer, 
I was just behind the colonel when the first shot from the enemy came flying seemingly over our heads. I heard him say, smilingly, Thank you. But immediately afterward, he ordered every one of us to lie flat upon the ground, while he, still directing, kept on his feet, walking around among us, leading his horse. The shots began coming thicker, and many of us yelled to him to lie down also. How long after this, I do not know, but I heard the colonel cry out that he was shot, and I saw him clutch his leg and get down in a sitting position. I was lying alongside of Lou McLaughlin. Some tall weeds obscured my vision. So I asked Lou to crouch lower, and I rolled over to him, to the other side, and was there kept busy with my carbine, for the Indians were on to us. They were circling round while the others were shooting. Very soon I heard Lou growl and mutter. I looked at him and saw that he was hit. A bullet coming from the direction where I was lying struck his gun sight and glanced into his breast. He told me what had happened, but I could give him no attention, for there seemed lots of work to do before us. But later, after the repulse of the attack, I looked at Lou and was surprised to see him lying in a wallow. In his pain, he had torn up the grass and dug his hands into the sand. In answer to my question whether he was hurt bad, he told me not bad, and advised me to dig into the sand and make a hole, as it would be a protection. I'm not sure at this time, but I'm now under the impression that I told Colonel Forsyth of this, and from that time on we began to dig with our hands, or whatever we could use and kick with our heels and toes in the sand, and some of us soon had holes dug deep enough to protect the chest, at least. Time seemed out of our calculations. I heard someone call, What time is it? An answer came, Three o'clock. I had thought it was about ten a.m. We had nothing to eat or drink all day, and strange to say, I was not hungry, which may have been the reason why I thought it was early still. Word was passed that Lieutenant Beecher and Scouts Wilson and Culver were killed. Colonel Forsyth wounded again. Also, Dr. Moore shot in the head, and others hurt whose names I do not now remember. We fought steadily all day. After dark, the Indians withdrew. Then nature began to assert itself. I got hungry. There was nothing to eat in the camp that I knew of, except in wild plums that I had gathered the day before, which were in my saddlebags still on the body of my horse. I got out of my hole, creeping on hands and knees toward where I knew the poor animal lay. As I felt my way in the darkness, I touched something cold, and upon examination found that it was Wilson's dead hand. He lay where he fell. It was a most horrible feeling. The shivers ran up and down my back, but I got to my horse at least, and tugging, I finally secured the bag in my plums. I found in it also a piece of bacon, the size of two fingers, which I reserved for a last emergency, and was still in possession of that rusty piece of fat when relief came. On my way back to my hole, I passed one where Dr. Moores lay wounded, moaning piteously. I put a plum in his mouth, and I saw it between his teeth next morning. He died on the night of the 19th. All our wounded were very cheerful, and to look at Colonel Forsyth and talk to him as he lay there helpless— no outsider would have suspected that he was crippled. We used to gather round him in his pit to hold conversation, not like men in a desperate situation, but like neighbors talking over a common cause. Colonel Forsyth was the right man in command of such a heterogeneous company. Like the least among us, he attended to his own horse when in camp, and many times I had seen him gather buffalo chips to supply the mess fuel. 
While he was our commander in practice, he was our friend, and as such we respected him, followed, and obeyed him. On about the fifth day, as the Indians began leaving us, we began to walk about and look around. About fifteen or twenty feet from my pit, I noticed a few of our men calling to the rest of us. I ran to the place, and there, against the edge of the island, I saw three dead Indians. Their friends evidently could not reach them to carry them off, which explained to us the persistent fighting in this direction. When I got there, the Indians were being stripped of their equipments, scalps, etc. One of them was shot in the head, and his hair was clotted with blood. I took hold of one of his braids and applied my knife to the skin above the ear to secure the scalp. But my hand coming in contact with the blood, I dropped the hair in disgust. Old Jim Lane saw my hesitation, and taking up the braid, said to me, My boy, does it make you sick? Then, inserting the point of the knife under the skin, he cut around, took up the other braid, and jerked the scalp from the head. I had been about three years in that country and four years in America, and life on the plains under such hardships as I had undergone hardens the sensibility, yet I was not quite ripe for such a cutting affray, even with a dead Indian. After this, we were not molested, but devoted our time to looking around for something to eat besides the rotten horse and mule meat, which we boiled several times in water and powder, not to get it soft, but to boil out the stench as much as possible. We found some cactus fruit and killed a coyote, of which the brains and a rib were my portion. Aside from this, we had nothing but horse and mule during the siege, which soon told on our bowels. But in spite of all this, I do not remember a despondent man in our crowd. One morning, being the ninth since we were attacked, I was laying outside of my pit, having done some guard duty during the night. I was half dozing and dreaming of home and a good meal. I felt so homesick and so hungry when I heard someone call attention to something moving on the hill. I was all attention at once. Soon I heard again, I think that's Dr. Fitzgerald's Greyhound. Whoever it might be, we would welcome. We would even have been pleased to have the Indians attack us again, in hopes of killing one of their horses for fresh meat, but it was soon evident that help was coming. And when I fully realized this fact, and feebled as I was, I jumped up and joined in a lunatic's dance that was in progress all around us. Those on the hill must have seen us, for there was a rush of horsemen down the hill toward us, followed by one or two ambulance wagons. They were as eager to reach us as we were to greet them. And as I ran uphill, I noticed a soldier on a white horse coming full tilt. The momentum carried him past me, but in passing I grabbed his saddlebag and was taken off my feet, but it would have taken more than one horse to drag me from my hold. I suspected some eatables in there, and as soon as he could stop, without dismounting, he assisted me to open that bag. With both hands I dived in, and with each hand I clutched some hardtack, but only one hand could reach my mouth, my other in the grip of one of our men who ravenously snatched the tacks. We ate, cried, laughed, and ate, all in a breath. As soon as possible, we put our dead in the ground. Those that died at one end of the island were cared for by those in that vicinity, and others in their vicinity, so that one part of the island was not aware of the location of the corpses of the other part. At least I did not know where the bodies lay of those killed on the eastern end of the island. So one time, as I walked around among the pits, I noticed something red and round sticking out of the sand, like a half-buried red berry. 
I kicked it, but by doing so it was not dislodged. I kicked again, but to no result. I then looked closer and discovered that it was the nose of a dead man. I called others to my assistance, and we fixed matters so that no discretion was possible again. Our mortally wounded were made as comfortable as possible before they died. I assisted as such ministrations given to Lieutenant Beecher. We removed his boots, coat, etc. And of course, these things were not replaced on the body after he was dead, but lay around unnoticed. My shoes were quite badly worn, especially after having been used for digging in the sand. So when relief came and we were preparing to leave the island, I put on his shoes, which were just about my size, and wore them even after I got back to New York City, leaving my old shoes in their stead on the island. At one of our sittings around Colonel Forsyth and his pit, the incident of killing the coyote was discussed, and plans were suggested for the killing of more of them. Along with others, I also suggested a scheme, but it was ridiculed, and I soon retired to my pit, which was near enough to the colonel's so that I could hear what was said there. One of the men remaining was saying uncomplimentary things about me, while the colonel silenced him, telling him that I was but a boy unused to such things, and that, under the circumstances, I was doing better than some of the older men. Colonel Forsyth is unconscious of the fact that I am very grateful to him for his kindness to that strange boy among those strangers and I still hope some day that I may have the opportunity to show my appreciation. Jack Stilwell and I were the only boys in the company, and naturally gravitated toward each other. We were friends as soon as we met, and chums before we knew each other's names. When the colonel asked for volunteers to go to Fort Wallace for help, Jack was among the first to announce himself. I wanted to go with him, but the colonel gave no heed to my request. Even Jack discouraged me, for he knew I was too inexperienced. After Colonel Carpenter came to our relief, Jack was not with him, which made me and others feel very uneasy. The day after Colonel Carpenter's arrival, we saw the mounted sentinel that had been posted by Colonel Carpenter on a high eminence in the hills about three miles from the island, signaling that the body of men was approaching, which created a flutter of excitement. But there was a strong sensation of security mingled with a sense of dependence upon our black rescuers, permeating our emaciated party, after being cooped up, so to say, for so long a period in dread and suspense. At least, that was my sensation. I remember watching that vedette, horse and rider, turning around and around, being the only moving object in that dim distance, indicating to the anxious watchers that either friend or foe was in the vicinity. As he showed no inclination to leave his post, it was soon evident he had no fear of the approaching column, and that friends were coming. Not long after, a few horsemen were seen coming around the bend of the riverbed, and among them was my friend Jack Stilwell. Nearly all of us ran to meet the party. Soon Jack jumped from his horse, and in his joy to see so many of us alive again, he permitted his tears flow freely down his good honest cheeks. I kept up correspondence with him all these years past. Last year he died. He was a big-hearted, jovial fellow, brave to a fault. Well, Brad, it is that time in the part of our show when we introduce our special guest. Who do we have on board today? My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this 
is the Japanese America podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mio. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. We have got Greg Heller today uh, to interview. Uh, Greg is a retired Texas peace officer with 26 years of service. After moving home to Kansas, Greg started researching the Texas Cowboy. During this time, Greg became a founding member of the Kansas Alliance of Professional Historic Performers, which sent him across a five-state region telling stories of the Texas Cowboy. About seven years ago, Greg was offered a job with the Ellsworth County Historical Society, working at the Fort Harker Guardhouse Museum. He started studying Fort Harker and its role in the American Indian Wars, as well as the Indian Wars themselves. Greg started the Fort Harker Facebook page. While at Fort Harker, Greg worked with other historians in organizing the Grand Reunion of Forsyth Scouts, which on August 25th, 2018, at Fort Harker, celebrated the 150th anniversary of the formation of Forsyth Scouts and the Battle of Beecher Island. Well, it's about that time. Let's give uh, him a call, Greg Heller. I'd like to welcome you to Wild West Podcast, and thank you so much for joining us today. We hear a lot of great things uh, about you. Uh, Brad just uh, read portions of your bio, and it's very, very impressive. Brad and I are working on a story about Beecher Island. Actually, this is the second story on Beecher Island. We've come back to Beecher Island quite often during the run of this podcast, so it's Again, it's great to to have an outside voice that's not ours too. Yeah. Well, and, and we and our first story we told was about Hoodoo Brown meeting up with Jack Stilwell in a saloon in Hayes, getting recruited right before he goes out to the Battle of the Washita with Custer, and then uh, ends up picking up all the dead bodies afterwards. Then uh, we did another story. Uh, what was the second one? Oh, the, the actual story of Beecher Island, right. and. Now we're going to do the, the Schlesinger. Talked about Chauncey Whitney. Yeah, and, Whitney. And, but now we're getting ready to do another story called the Schlesinger account, which is the actual diary, the, uh, the Battle of, of the Beecher Island. Can you tell us a little bit about what role did Fort Wallace play in the Battle of Beecher Island? Well, actually, Fort Wallace had a couple of different roles. Of course, the, the scouts were first, the first 30 scouts were signed on here at Fort Harker. Uh, they then went to Hayes, where another 20 were signed up, uh, along with Dr. Moores. Then they went to Fort Wallace, where they were meet up with uh, Forsyth's second in command, uh, Lieutenant Fred Beecher. And that is where Fort Wallace got the information that the end of the track town of Sheridan had just been attacked by about 25 Braves. And so they left Wallace, went to that location, and picked up the trail of these 25 and tracked them up into the northeast part of Colorado and made camp on the Arikari. And in the morning of the 17th, they're attacked by 750 Cheyenne. And the rescue force, the 10th Cavalry, was uh, 
out of Fort Wallace, of course. So Wallace had a dual rule, a dual role, not only supplying uh, Lieutenant Beecher and resupplying the scouts at that location, but also they were very important in the rescue of uh, Forsyth and the scouts at, at Beecher Island. You know, there's a story that goes behind that uh, that's still well, and uh, another French man, I don't know what his name was, they actually Who went. Knows? Yeah, yeah. True. And uh, actually went back to uh, the fort. Can you tell us a little bit about that trip and what that might have been like? Uh, yeah. <laughs> that, uh, that was quite an experience. I, there's, you know, there's no way. They, all I got to say is those some, some mighty stout men. Stillwell and Trudeau left to try to get back to Fort Wallace for help. Of course, they were surrounded by Indians. They walk out through the night. They walk backwards, basically, for part of the ways to um, to uh, kind of confuse the Indians. And they also taken their boots off, so they're barefoot. And uh, partway there, uh, in, they saw Indians coming, so they went to hide. And part of the hiding, <laughs> well, the way they hid was they crawled into a buffalo carcass um, and and hid and then worked their way back to the fort. Well, at the same time they were doing that, uh, Chauncey Whitney and another scout tried to get out, but they were repelled back by the Indians. And so they later, Donovan and Piley were sent out. And amazingly, Donovan, Piley, Trudeau, and Stillwell all made it to Wallace at about the same time. So it was, it was quite a hard trip, and um, all I can say is these guys were amazing. I believe it was Trudeau, I believe, couldn't hardly walk by the time he got there. And he wasn't able to go out with the uh, the rescue party or try to find because he was so in such bad shape physically. Well, well, tell me, there's a part in that story where they're in that carcass and supposedly uh-huh. a rattlesnake comes out. Rattlesnake. And they, yeah. <laughs> and they dispatched the rattlesnake with the... Chaw tobacco between the eyes, is that right? <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't know if that's true or not. Of course, you know, back then, uh, you always had to make a, a story sound better. Uh, but yeah, the story says that while they were there, a, a rattlesnake crawled into the carcass with them, and, and one of them spit at him, with his, uh, had a chaw of tobacco and spit at him, and the snake went away. <laughs> Well, yeah, humor of the myths, uh, along with the history, is really inspiring a lot of times. Because I, I, I agree with you. Oh, sometimes yeah. they they stretch those stories out, but it, because of the stretch, uh, it makes it a lot more interesting for people. That's one of those oh, yeah. things. If it, if it wasn't true, it should have been. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Uh, it makes a better story. <laughs> That's right. So I don't know. I think it was a pretty good story, even without the rattlesnake. There you go. So let's talk a little bit about why the Battle of Beecher Island was a significant event in history. <clears throat> Battle of Beecher Island, number one, was the number one publicized engagement between the Native Americans and the U.S. government. And it held that position all the way until June 25th of 76 when customers systemized. And then it drops to number two, where it actually still stays today. It's actually uh, still talked about 
it was also one of the very first major type engagements, full engagements with uh, the Native Americans that that the military had. You know, we had several skirmishes and and little battles here and there throughout throughout the, the Plains Indian Wars, but that was actually one of the very first major type uh, battles between the two factions. And uh, during that battle, one of the chiefs, Roman Nose, he perished Romanos. in the battle. Can you tell us a little right. bit about that? Now, we have Chauncey Whitney, Whitney being the actual person who pulled the trigger, but that really has to do a lot with the series that we're writing on uh, Trails, Forts, Treaties, and Indian Wars. So that story's in there because uh, later on he gets killed by... Uh, uh, by Billy Thompson by there Billy in, Thompson in Ellsworth. In so. Ellsworth. So we had to bring him in some way, but uh, he was there also at the Battle of Beecher Island. Anyway... Oh, yeah, he was. The idea of a Roman nose and that charge that he made, can you kind of describe what that looked like? All those... Soldiers hiding behind their horses and dug in, uh, dead horses. Well, as yeah, you know, dead horses. Uh, as the story goes, Romanos was the uh, dog soldiers' war leader. Okay, and he had uh, he wore this great big long extravagant headdress as part of his medicine. And another part of his medicine was that he not eat food prepared the white man way. Uh, like with metal utensils. And supposedly a couple of days prior to the actual battle, he was handed a piece of meat. Uh, he ate it and then found out that it had been picked up off the fire by a metal fork, uh, compromising his medicine. Uh, not having time for a cleansing ceremony, uh, they then attacked Forsyth and the scout. But the first charge, Roman nose kind of stepped back up on a hill and, and watched the first attack. And this, of course, upset his warriors, and so they came back and chastised him. You know, you're, you're Romano's the great war leader, and you're sitting back on this hill like a woman. And uh, so he jumps off his pony, strips down naked, hops back up, and wearing his war bonnet, and leads the next charge. And as they're making a pass by the scout, Past the scouts, he was shot in the back. Uh, they take him back to the camp where he died. So maybe there was something to his medicine. We don't really know <laughs> for sure. Well, the medicine man was very important back in those days anyway, right? In the ceremonies. I, that whole yeah. that whole culture, just understanding and, and knowing about it and the rituals they went through were very important to the war factions. And dog soldiers. Let's talk a little bit about dog soldiers. Dog soldiers, because dog soldiers uh, were their warriors. Uh, they were kind of the keepers of the camp. Can you tell us a little bit about them and what what role they played and why they were different from the other parts of the tribe? Well, each each tribe, whether it's Cheyenne, Arapaho, Pawnee, or whatever, is divided into different societies. Um, and you have a warrior society. Well, the Cheyenne people, the dog soldiers, were the warrior society. And they were the caretakers. They were the ones that when the, the village is moving from one point to another, they're the ones following up behind, covering the back. They were the protectors of, of the village. 
and um, the Cheyenne dog soldiers themselves were, uh, you know, some of the most fiercest fighters out there. But they were there to protect the the people of the village. Well, Greg, just as kind of a prelude to this next section, uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about kind of your understanding of the the relationship between the various frontier forts, uh, such as it was like Harker, uh, Wallace, Fort Hayes, Larned, Dodge, uh, in cooperation uh, or lack thereof, as the case may be? Well, actually, they worked pretty close together. Uh, they were stretched out along the various trails. Of course, Harker, Hayes, and Wallace were along the Smoky Hill Trail. Larner, Dodge, Aubrey were along the, uh, the Santa Fe Trail. And so they, they worked together protecting each other. Let's, let's take, um, oh, let's, let's, let's take Dodge City and let's go out about 60 miles and they have a 60 mile radius around that. Uh, and then Larnard, Fort Larnard, you have a 60 to 70 mile radius around that. Well, those two radiuses overlap. So we're working with each other, protecting that area, supporting each other. Uh, and at Fort Harker, well, they supported everybody because in 69, they finally became the main supply depot for all the frontier forts out the west. So there was quite a bit of, they worked together a lot. Uh, part of the things that would happen would, we would bring, um, oh, let's, let's go to the Fort uh, Zara down on the Santa Fe Trail. And freight's coming up to the trail to Fort Zara. They change wagons. We go down from Fort Harker. We pick up those wagons. We bring it up here and we put it on on the train. And then we take stuff that's brought in on the train back down to Fort Zara. Or we've got an escort, a stage escort, or a wagon train escort that we go to is going towards Fort Hayes, where we'll take them out so far. Fort Hayes will meet halfway and and pick up the escort. So all the frontier forts work very, very close with each other. They they had to to, to survive. And here at Fort Harker we had the main hospital. So all right. Well, hey, I really appreciate you inviting me to, to come to this. Um, I had a great time. Uh, of course, I always love talking about history, and sometimes uh, uh, I get talking too much. <laughs> no, That's why whenever I go to speak, my wife is sitting in the background. Telling we're, me we're all in the same boat. So. Yep, yeah, we are. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you again. And we're again, uh, let's talk about coming out and visiting us uh, sometime soon, okay? Sure, sure. Keep in touch and let me know. And, and uh, it sounds like sounds like fun. Yeah. Go ahead and do that. Yeah. Appreciate you, Greg. Thank you. All right. See you. See you. All right, guys. Soon. Good job. Thank you. Good job. Take, okay. Bye. Take care.